So we're continuing in our study of Genesis chapter 4. We looked at the sin of Cain uh, last last week. Uh, and this week we're looking at the world that he's created. So that's that's what I'm attempting to do today. I hope you will find something in here that actually benefits your life today and tomorrow and the next day. Uh, we're back at the very beginning when it all first started. And we see in this... Uh, the foundation, and I, I was tempted to do it today, but I'm not. I didn't uh, to put together all the new uh, theologies that were developed in these first four chapters of the book of Genesis, and I'm obviously going to have to do that sometime before we hit Genesis chapter six, and we really get weird. Uh, so, uh, in the beginning, prior to the flood, it was a fairly normal world, except for the fact that there was, in the beginning, no sin, and sin, when sin came in, people lived a very long time, and it's, it's going to change, it's going to change a lot of things um, because of sin. Now, we, those of us that attempt to walk with God, we have three great enemies. Uh, we find this in First John chapter 2 and verse 16. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, we met those in reverse order so far in the book of Genesis. We met the devil first in chapter 3. We saw the flesh in Cain's anger in chapter 4. And now today we're going to look at the world Cain has created, the world of Cain. You know, we pick up our story in chapter 4, verse 14, where Cain has just murdered his brother Abel. And if you remember from last week, there were two brothers and probably or at least possibly twins. And yet they were worlds apart in their attitude towards God and towards their own parents as well, I suppose. Abel believed God's promise. And because of that, he offered a sacrifice. Let me see if I get the clicky thing to clicky. Uh, by faith, Hebrews tells us, the writer of Hebrews um, Offered God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. You remember Cain brought the fruit of his ground, the work of his own hands, and Abel brought of his flock, the firstlings of the flock, and he offered a bloody sacrifice. Now, Cain apparently didn't get it. Cain was a farmer. Abel was a shepherd. So it looked like Abel was offering of the works of his hands, and he wasn't. He was offering by faith. That's what the writer Hebrews tells us. He just believed God. Not that he understood it. I don't think you could sit down with Abel and have him explain the gospel to you the way you could explain it to someone. But nonetheless, he understood that God expected him to approach God through certain steps, you know. And it's because of that excellent sacrifice that uh, God accepted his offering, and we don't know what that manifested itself as, and uh, rejected Cain's. We don't know what that manifested itself as, but it certainly made Cain very, very angry. And God told these boys, told their parents, actually, in, in Genesis chapter 4, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 3, he told them, well, he, he, he drew out from Adam first in verse 11 of Genesis chapter 3, a confession, where God said to Adam, who told thee that thou wast naked? This is the, 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 the question God asked. Have you eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And from that, came, uh, I'm sorry, Adam confesses to him. There's no approaching God without recognizing our sin. So the first thing that Abel understood that Cain did not is we have to come to God in confession of our own sin. Adam 
Adam confessed his sin, sort of like most husbands do, by blaming it on his wife. Uh, but nonetheless, it was a confession. He said, yes, I did it. You know. And then we find later in that same chapter of Genesis chapter 3, that we must receive God's covering, not something that we've made ourselves like fig leaves, but we must receive God's covering by faith. And in this case, it's faith in the shed blood of an innocent sacrifice. So the, the offering of Jesus thousands of years later, the, the, the procedure or the system or the theology or the doctrine was set in practice in the third chapter of the book of Genesis, carries through 66 books and 40 writers. So the exact same plan of salvation never changes. So Abel understood this. Cain did not. Cain decided that his work was good enough. The first John tells us, not as Cain who was of that wicked one and slew his brother and wherefore slew him because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. Cain was like so many of us in our world today that when you share with them the truth that we are all sinners, and deserved the punishment of God. Cain, like so many of us, said, my works are good enough. I've lived a good life. I've done more good than bad. God can accept me as I am. And he won't. That's the simple truth of the gospel. He wouldn't do it with Cain, and he won't do it with us. We have to come as God has prescribed for us. As always, sin takes away everything that we ever wanted. As always, sin delivers the opposite of what it promises. So God told Cain he had to leave. He told Cain that the ground would not produce for him. He told Cain that he was to be a wanderer for the rest of his life. And that's exactly what sin does. Cain cries out to God that his punishment is unfair. You've driven me out this day from the face of the earth and from the face of from thy face shall I be hid, and I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth. And it shall come to pass that every one that findeth me shall slay me. Now he wanted respect. He received humiliation. He wanted to be a successful farmer. The productivity of the ground was cursed. He wanted to be a leader in his family, having killed the only one that they had. And instead, he was driven out and became a hated man by his own family. That's what sin does. Sin says, I'm going to give you power, I'm going to give you riches, I'm going to give you this, I'm going to give you that. And the next thing you know, you're in a gutter somewhere with a needle in your arm, and you're dying because you believe the lie. Satan always lies. You can't believe a word that he says. He's a liar, Jesus said, and the father of it. Remember this before you're tempted to sin the next time. Sin always promises a lot but it delivers very little. And I suppose I would be remiss if I didn't speak on the fact that Cain was worried about people killing him. And who was he afraid of? Was he afraid of two brothers? Was he afraid? The other brother hadn't even been born. At least, I don't know if you can take it this way. I don't want to say that. Uh, we, don't, we don't really know how many brothers and sisters Cain had. But who's he afraid of? So I think I got this from Chuck Missler, and I'm pretty sure he got it from somebody else. 
But who is Cain of afraid of? Two brothers and a sister? So let's do the numbers. And I, I know that's pretty small. I guess that works for you. It didn't work for me. I need stronger glasses. Uh, if, if This is based on assumptions, of course. If we were to assume that in the first 40 years, uh, Adam and Eve had 10 kids, uh, it's not, not unlikely um, that they had 10 kids. Uh, keep in mind, that's the first 40 years. They're going to live over 900 years. And they're going to have sons and daughters. So in the second 40, after that first 40, five of those pair up and have 10 more kids each. So at the end of 80 years, you have 50 children. You also have their parents and their grandparents. And then in, in the third generation, if I can use 40 as a generation, those 25 pairs have 250 children. And in the next 40, 120 years after Cain was born, 125 parents, 1,250 children. The next 40, you have 6,250 children. The next 40, you have 31,250 children. And in the seventh generation from Adam, which is where we're going to, um, yeah, that's where we're going to get to today is Lamech. Uh, we have 15,000 pairings producing 156,250 children from Adam and Eve, all one father and one mother. Um, so what's he afraid of? Now, keep in mind that all during, I mean, I just cut Adam and Eve off at 40 years. They were having children. And like I say, some theologians believe twins. Uh, they were having children for a good portion of the 900 years that they lived. So uh, you'll hear theologians speculate that by the time of the flood, there were millions, if not billions, of people on the earth. Uh, based on the fact that these people don't die. These, these people live. You know, they live long lives and they're very productive. Abraham was 118, I believe, when he had his last child. Uh, I don't think his wife at that time was 118, but he was. Uh, and sin had already wreaked havoc in the human population, you know. So we go 200, 240 years, and, and Cain is still a young man. He's going to live many, many more years, and we're going to see his, his line today. Uh, yet there are 156,249 relatives that aren't too happy with his behavior. So if you think, what's he afraid of? This is what he's afraid of. This tribe has grown into a nation, or at least a darn good-sized town, you know. And Cain was afraid, so God said to him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. Now that sevenfold will become a biblical principle. And I'll come back to that if, if time and my brain allow it, you know. There's a lot of speculation over this mark of Cain. And evil people have used the mark of Cain to excuse all kinds of horrendous behavior. God specifically did not tell us what the mark of Cain is and had no intention for us to know what it is. And I don't think we should speculate beyond it other than the fact that God marked him in, in some way. For all I know is he shaved off half of his eyebrow. So like me, he only has half an eyebrow. I don't know what the mark of Cain is. But whatever it was, people knew that this was the one they weren't supposed to kill. Seven generations later, Lamech, his, I don't know, fourth or fifth great-grandson, uh, will remember this curse and he'll make a poem about it, you know. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord 
I don't know if he could have repented at this point. You know, God drove him out. God drove him out. Was that his judgment? I don't know. Was it over? Possibly. Uh, possibly he'd given himself over to Satan. Could he have repented and come back? I don't know. It says he dwelt in the land of Nod. And the word Nod just means wanderings. Some of your Bibles probably have that. He dwelt in the land of wanderings on the east of Eden. So he went east. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch. And built a city. Enoch means disciplined or structured. Uh, and, and he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. You know, he was told to wander, and he goes out and he builds a city. Uh, and it's, you know, he doesn't trust God. So probably all he did is he set up a walled structure around his encampment. And that became what was known as the first city. You know, when, when we talk about the city of David, now we're talking many thousand years later in human civilization. We talk about the city of David, which would one day become Jerusalem. It, it was only 10 acres. Uh, it wasn't even a large farm. And that, that eventually would become what is now known as Jerusalem. So the first question is, why was he afraid? Well, he was afraid of 156,000 plus relatives. And by now, <clears throat> you know, he didn't even know their names. Uh, years ago, I said to Joe, welcome back, Joe. It's good to have you back. Uh, I said to Joe, I said, so how many brothers and sisters do you have? And he looked at me kind of blank, like he's kind of <laughs> counting in the back of his head. I didn't ask you the names then. Uh, that would have been a disadvantage. I don't know. But uh, that might have been better. It might, it might have been better. That's probably what he's doing in his head. He's going, nah, 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 nah. I think you're second from the oldest. Yeah, yeah. Big families. Imagine 156,000 brothers, sisters, cousins, nephews, and nieces. Talk about renting the fire hall when you have a party. Holy cow. Yeah. Now, where did he get his wife? That's the second question. Clearly, he picked it from one of his nephews. I'm sorry, one of his nieces or uh, grandnieces or great, 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 grandnieces. We don't know. We don't know. These guys sometimes were in their hundreds by the time they married the first time. We don't, we don't know. No, those details aren't given us, but it's clearly possible. It wasn't until, and this is a horrible thing to give you to read, Leviticus 18, and maybe I won't read it all. I'm watching that clock. Oh, <laughs> you need to go back and read Leviticus 18. Read the whole chapter. I'm not going to read it to you. It would just embarrass me to have to read it to you. But there's a whole bunch of things in Leviticus 18 that we are not supposed to be involved in, period. All right. Now, one of those is relationships to near family. And God set the limits on that. Leviticus 18, we're talking after the flood. We're talking thousand or so years after creation that that cap was set. So Cain would, and, and uh, who followed Cain? Uh, uh, Seth. Seth, thank you. Would, uh, would uh, have done nothing wrong to have married a sister or a niece or father down the family line. In fact, there was a time in recent times when powerful families encouraged marriage within the family to keep the money and the power centralized. So it's not uncommon. Now, God says, to the Jews in Leviticus 18. Now Moses is writing this down, and we don't know when it was first understood by the Jews. We don't know when this rule was first given. This is the first reference to it. Defile not yourselves in any of these things, for all these things the nations that are defiled, which I cast out before you, and the land is defiled. Therefore I, therefore I do visit. You say, why did God treat those Canaanites so badly? This is why. Because they defiled the land by doing things that God does not allow us to do. 
Now, you need to go back and read 18. That'll be your assignment for this week. Go back and find out what we're not supposed to do. Find out what will defile our land and what will cause God to drive us. It's funny. It's almost like the land is alive. And if you get a look at verse 28, that the land spew not you out also when you defile it as it spewed out the nations that were before you. Well, I'm not going to get into that any further than that, but you need to. Uh, Cain City was built in defiance of God's command to wander. Now the word city doesn't mean much, as I said. Uh, this is a Cain's attempt to thumb his nose at God, protect also to protect himself. You know, so Cain goes out and he builds a city, and he names it after his son. And he's building a legacy. He's building a progeny. And here's David writing uh, in Psalm 49, talking about the lost world. Now what we're looking at is the mentality of the world, the world that's building its prosperity against the will of God, the world that is in opposition to God's will, all right? When I talk about the world, I'm not just talking about where we're standing. I'm talking about this anti-God system, this satanic system that's designed to make us prosper without God. So they are the lost world, and their inward thought, the psalmist writes, is that their house shall continue forever. So I, I buy a farm, and I, I build a fence around it, and I, I name it Henleyville, see? And they're dwelling places to all their generations. They think that now, from now on, my name will be remembered forever. They call their lands after their own names, David writes. Nevertheless, man being in honor abideth not. It don't work, right? He's like the beast that perish. You're going to die. You're going to dissolve. Your fortune is going to dissolve. Everything you've ever done is going to just go into dust. Nothing is going to result from it. This, their way, is their folly. This is foolishness for the world. This is the world's thinking, and it's foolishness. Yet their posterity, that means their sons and daughters and grandsons and granddaughters, they approve the saying. They believe it. They accept it. You know, my dad was a great man. My dad was this. My dad was that. We think we're making a name for ourselves, and our children play along with this game. But we leave it all behind. Our legacy dissolves and actually if what i've seen is true too many times our, our legacy gets fought over by the children and the grandchildren i can't tell you how many times linda's told me she's had a friend and a parent died and the other sibling did not tell their her friend that mom and dad had died before they went in and gutted the house they took everything else before they let anybody know that's happened at least three times that i remember since i've lived here you know, Jesus tells us to invest in things that last. And if you get nothing else out of this message today, tell Jesus you want your life to count. Lord, I want my life to count for you because everything else is going back to dust. Well, then we get in a little bit of the family tree of Canaan. Of Canaan, I'm sorry. And unto Enoch was born Irad, and Irad begat Mahujael. And Mahujael, uh, boys, if you're listening, I'm sorry, I'm messing up your names. And Mahujael begat Methuselah. And Methuselah begat Lamech. Lamech is the one we're headed for. Seventh generation from Adam, if I'm not mistaken. And Lamech took unto him two wives. This is the first time we have double wives mentioned. And the name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. But multiple wives was never part of God's plan for marriage. Although once the world started doing it, some of God's people got caught up in it as well. Adam was told to leave his family. Of course, in Adam's case, he didn't have a family. 
But Adam was told, therefore, shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be and shall cleave, hang on to hold fast to his wife. Singular. God never, never uh, suggested or, or encouraged multiple wives. But here we see the introduction of the world of Cain. Everything is in direct opposition to the will of God. See. Later, other even believers will take on multiple wives. But as Jesus said from the beginning, it was not so. Uh, moving on in the family tree here. Uh, and Ada bare Jabel, and he was the father of such as dwell in tents. Well, some of them were nomads, and that makes sense. And of such as have cattle. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all such as handled the harp and the organ. And Zillah, she also bare Tublicane, an instructor of every artificer, artificer, I can't say that word, in brass and iron, and the sister of Tublicane was Mamah. And in this, Cain is going to have eight boys. Now, we're assuming he had girls too, so by the time we're getting through this first reading of Cain, we've got 16 offspring. And Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, ye wives. I don't know if you sense this, but already women are becoming property. I don't know if you sense that in this verse. <coughs> Listen to me, woman. Uh, Hearken unto my speech, for I have slain a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt. People don't really know if he's telling the truth or not, whether he actually killed someone. I mean, can we assume that he did? What, what was his son's, what was his, I guess it was his father's specialty. Or his grandfather's specialty. Or his uncle's specialty. Metallurgy. So what we're seeing now, seven generations from Adam, is the introduction of weapons. Metallic weapons. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy and sevenfold. And that's another number that's very interesting. First of all, this is the fourth written poem in Scripture. Nothing against poetry. I, I took a course in college on poetry. I hated poetry, but it was the only course I could get in. And by the time I got done, I kind of liked it. It's kind of nice. But this is the first written poem. Uh, and it speaks of Lamech's arrogance and his pride. You can hear the hiss of Satan in this poem. Lamech's words... Yeah, but it was Satan's ideas. About 70 times 7. We don't know where that number came from or what the connection is, but that's 490. So it's saying that I'm going to avenge somebody who harms me 490 times. Now, when the, when the boys asked Jesus, how often should we forgive? Seven times. And Jesus says, no, I say unto you 70 times 7. And you think... Well, that's an odd expression to pick it up. I mean, you get this connection. I don't know what the connection is. That's something you can meditate on this week. But it's interesting if, you, if you're into studying the consistency of Scripture, if you really hold on to it and then map out the history of Israel, you will see that Israel's history flows in sections of 490 years. I think it happens three times. And what it is, God forgives them, forgives them, forgives them for 489 times. And then he busts them a good one. You know. So I don't know if I can prove that, but I've read others who have said that. 
We know this. God tells us that vengeance belongs to him. And certainly Lamech is far, far from the perfect will of God. Now we close here and just in time. Um, and this is introducing, I suppose, next week. Um, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son and called his name Seth. For God said she had, Seth means appointed. For she said, for God, she said, for God said she, I can't read this old English anymore, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel. This is Abel's replacement, whom Cain slew. I'd love to know how old Cain was when this was written. I wish there was a timeline on this. And to Seth and to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began man to call upon the name of the Lord. Enos means frailty, and at some point I'll do my little name thing with you that I stole from someone years, years and years ago. Uh, and we'll go through all the patriarchs' names and see how the gospel is tied right into their name. Uh, now, it says, then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. It's, it's, our, it's our belief that the, these people kicked out of Eden would go to the entrance where the flaming cherubim were, and they'd make their offerings there. And at least in some people's minds, that's where men first began to worship. And you could call this the first church of Eden. And if you were a diehard Baptist, you could say this is the first Baptist church of Eden. But no one was baptized back then. So probably a little arrogant to call it that. Chuck Messler sees them meeting on the Sabbath day. Jesus, uh, Jesus, the creator, ordered them to take the Sabbath day off. And we're assuming that they worked six days. And then on Saturday, they met at the gate and they worshiped. You know. Now, Satan incited Cain's pride in order to murder Abel, and the purpose of murdering Abel was to break God's ability to bring a deliverer that was promised in Genesis chapter 3 out of the seed of the woman. It was Satan's first attempt to block God's plan to bring a deliverer. It won't be his last. And there's a second interesting thing that follows through this, this line as we study uh, the ancestors of the Lord Jesus is how many of them had trouble giving birth, getting pregnant, uh, or one thing or another that it was Satan's attempt to destroy God's line. Uh, there'll be many more attempts. But in this case, God raised up another seed, Seth. His name means appointed. It will be through his descendants. Men will call upon the name of the Lord. Now, we talk about the incredible progress that Cain's family made. And these aren't cavemen we're talking about here, all right? I mean, we're talking about one generation from Adam building a walled city. We're talking about men and women who could plant and grow crops, weave clothing, make tools. These weren't, this isn't an ascent up from the monkeys. I do believe people dwelt in caves, and I'll probably get into that sometime later. But I think the cave dwellings was after the flood, not before. And even then, I don't think they were cavemen and cave women. I don't believe that. Both 
families made incredible progress before the flood. Every generation in both worlds, Cain's world and Seth's world, the godly line and the ungodly line, and that's going to become an important point in a couple of chapters. Every generation in both worlds had made astonishing progress. Building cities, mastering the elements of creation, arts, music, mathematics, science, medicine. I guess not boat building, but certainly woodworking. The point is, we're looking at two worlds here. And you know that because you're living in two worlds here. The point is that if God is not at the center of such an enterprise, it will be morally bankrupt. It may be very sophisticated, very powerful nations, very intelligent, very inventive, but morally bankrupt without God. What looks like progress from our perspective is not progress at all from God's perspective. I mean, I, I've saved my whole life and I'm comfortable with my checking account and I'm comfortable with my retirement and I'm comfortable with, with uh, all that, quote unquote, I have done. But that doesn't mean anything to God. What matters to God is what he's done through me. Progress, success, building a name for our legacy. These are carefully crafted schemes designed to destroy families. Understand that. And keep us from things that really matter. I want to read this to you from 1 John. Love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. That's Cain's world he's talking about. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. And, you know, that's old English. Really, it's the desires, the things we set our heart on to desire. And it's less offensive and perhaps should be offensive. The desires of the flesh, the things my flesh desires, the things that my eyes want to look on, the pride of life, that's not of the Father. It's of the world. And the world is passing away and all the lusts thereof. But the one that does the will of God, that's the one that lives forever. I have something I want to read you and I skipped it earlier. Sounds like our world, doesn't it? Stephen Cole wrote there were children, cities, cultures, careers. We get married, we have children, we build planned communities, we take the kids to music lessons, we pursue our careers. But when you do all these good things, apart from the presence of the Lord, they become only the illusion of progress, not real progress. The world tries to fill the emptiness of life without God, with all these good gifts, which God has given for the human race. These are good things. You just don't want to operate them apart from God. In fact, each of them can be can turn into a nightmare apart from God. Children can become brazen murderers like Lamech. Cities can become hopeless jungles of poverty and violence. Culture, music, literature, and films can be used to glorify filth. Don't we know that? Careers can be used to further greed and the selfish scramble to the top. I had to laugh. I've been watching. Oh. I'm talking too much, sorry. Uh, watching this Netflix series, just started it, called Suits. And I see my son in that, and I said to him, gosh, I was watching Suits. I've never seen it before on Netflix. And I said, it reminds me of you. He says, that's just like my office, Dad. And I thought, 
Get out now while you can. You know, it's a horrible office. Anyway, careers can be used to further greed and selfish. Scramble to the top. Inventions have brought us to the brink of destroying the human race. The problem isn't in these cultural and technological advantages. I'll read that again. The problem is not these cultural and technological advantages. The problem is when these things are done apart from the presence of God. Progress without God is only an illusion. I like that. Well written, Steve. Father, we thank you for this time together. And Lord, as we as we transition now into celebrating the Lord's Supper, the remembrance that your son gave us on that night before he offered himself on the cross for our sins. As we go about to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are reminded that it is through his blood and his body that we receive salvation. Be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Les, would you come up and, uh, John, do you mind helping? Do you mind helping? And Kenny, I see you're looking at me. Would you come up and help me? And somewhere here I have a Bible. And I think, Pat, Pat, we should pray for your leg before we uh, close. Nice to see you in the middle of the summer, huh? Yeah, not so nice for you, though. Are you here for a doctor's appointment? Oh, lucky you. Okay. Oh. It's been so long, I don't remember where I started here. Can I start with the bread? This is Paul writing. Uh, he, of course, he, he didn't know any of this stuff. He received it from the others. But there was a point in his life where he went out in the wilderness and he said, I'm tired of listening to people. I'm going to go sit in the desert and let God talk to me. And this is one of those times. He said, For I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. Father, we thank you for Jesus, who allowed his body to be nailed to that cross. Like that first lamb in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, sacrificing its life that others might live. In Jesus' name.